You're listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading it this week. I think you'll enjoy our program. Aside of the fact we have a little brief technical bump at the beginning, but it does get uh, – we get back on track pretty quickly. Uh, uh, spring is in the air. We're all in a great mood. We hope you're uh, enjoying the weather, and uh, we hope you enjoy this program as we uh, put quite a bit of time into it for you this week. Uh, lots of news, no guests, uh, and a lot of good conversation. I think you're going to really like it. If you have a moment to support our program, you like what we're doing, you can do that by going to Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and sign up and be a member with a requested donation. The suggested donation is uh, $5 a month. If you're uh, really generous or very capable and uh, maybe make more than $100,000 a year, you can maybe consider doing 10 bucks a month, just a suggestion. But we love just seeing that people support us. So if you're uh, if that's not financially feasible for you, believe us, we totally understand. Uh, even just a token donation, just to get your name up there, uh, just to sort of send us that love, you can send it as little as a dollar a month. Uh, and we appreciate everyone, no matter the amount you're able to, uh, to uh, become a member with so uh please consider it and uh check that out at patreon.com slash green majority enjoy the show So in case you're just uh, – in case that uh, didn't quite come through to you, uh, you are listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And uh, I'm going to let you know what's coming up later in the show before I pass to Stefan for, uh, for the first – uh, segment, but what's going to be coming up a little bit later is Samina is going to be talking about uh, agriculture and food issues. We have a bonus show for you this week, which is going to be talking about uh, climate deniers. Uh, there was a very interesting uh, Reddit chain about uh, people who uh, essentially have changed their mind. It's confessionals of uh, climate deniers uh, changing their mind. Oh, I got a little more strength there. Uh, so that's what's going to be coming up a little bit later in the uh, in the show. And uh, when I when I talk, when I talk uh, about uh, Alberta getting paid to save energy a little bit later, uh, we're also going to be doing um, a story about mining violence uh, in Toronto. And then also uh, something I think is worth a little bit of discussion here, and hopefully we'll get to, is BC Road Builder says money improves communication with governments, which I, of course, subtitled, duh. Uh, but we're going to get into some, uh, some numbers and the fact that... Uh, this is not universal. This is uh, something um, to some degree special to BC. This sort of donation from uh, companies and private interests is not allowed in many provinces. So we're going to talk a little bit about that later. But first, Stefan is going to start us off. So take it away, Stefan. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much, Darren. Uh, so uh, this, I feel like today is a uh, is special day. When I began thinking about this. Uh, the the concept uh, that I wanted to go with was was really to discuss um, how the sort of what PCM is uh, the People's Climate March from 2014 uh, because another one's happening tomorrow and and so there's this history uh, of, of the People's Climate March and the sort of the way activism has impacted uh the the has it sort of grown over the last say even 20 years um and and not only how the impact how that's grown over the last 20 years but also sort of where we stand now and and what this looks like moving forward 
And I was thinking about this mainly because of how different uh, my personal involvement has been uh, with these two marches. So the People's Climate March uh, and now the People's Climate Movement uh, started in 2014, uh, in September uh, 21st, 2014. It was 400,000 people descended uh, on New York City. And, and, that, uh, and, and that action um, was felt sort of like it really did feel like uh, like the beginning of a, of a movement. Uh, you know, it, it there, there was there there was buzz uh, across uh, really across the, the at least uh, across North America. Uh, let alone, and then there was you know there was marches across the world, and and it felt when he finished it, you know, there was, you know, there was a whole bunch of people who sort of came out saying, you know, this was not actually what was working um, or that this was not doing anything. Um, but what was really interesting um, was that there was still this other, um, you know, there's this, the backlash about how marches don't do anything, right? There's a backlash about how, uh, about how it wasn't actually, we, 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 you know, uh, there was a whole bunch of articles being like a bunch of environmentalists march and then create a ton of litter. Uh, and like, that was the, that was the takeaway was the amount of litter that this had caused. Um, and, and while that's, while, while that was interesting, I, I felt like that only came from a, a, a place of not actually understanding, uh, not being there, not really understanding and feeling how it, how it worked. Uh, so, the this we we where we stand now is is this is I think we're on the precipice. Um, uh, I feel like I've been talking a lot, and every once in a while I come back to this thought process that the policy that we see today and the policy that we are working on today uh, is you know about twenty years uh, behind where we need to be. Uh, you know, if in early if in the early I guess now I, I keep thinking twenty years is the early nineteen nineties, but now it's the late nineteen nineties. Um, if the mid to late nineteen nineties um, uh, comes into, uh, had we been having these conversations in in, in, in the middle, in the late nineteen nineties, we might actually be getting somewhere. We might actually be having a, a real conversation, and and yet. And, I, and that's on the policy side. But I think it's the same can somewhat be true, truly said about the, the climate side. Um, because the environmental movement in the 90s uh, was, uh, was recycling, to use, one of the, to use the three R's metaphor. Uh, it, was, you know, it, was, it was institutionalized. It was monochrome. Uh, it was not – it was you – know, there were certainly radical elements to it. But the, the, the piece that people remember and the, part that's, the parts that were sort of brought into it were, were super non-radical. Um, and it was really all about you know, leveraging personal choice. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if just everyone recycled, we'd be okay. Uh, and, and that didn't work. Uh, <laughs> shockingly, and and so and, and and so and so that sort of ended up moving you know moving on to to the two thousands. And if the two thousands were were a were environmental movement, uh, were, sorry, the environmental movement in the two thousands was was one of the R's. It's reduce. You know, we switched very much from like let's recycle everything to solve to let's reduce everything. Um, which you know is not is a yeah, a, a a step forward. Um, yet still. You know, the idea was basically we can we don't have to change how we don't have to change what we're doing. We just have to do less of it, uh, or find a way to to make all the things we're doing just less impactful. Uh, so you know, the Kyoto Accord uh, and and sort of the the more global movement towards a climate initiative towards uh, a climate agreement uh, sort of caused this caused this to this sort of reduction to come forward. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I, I just want to jump in really quick because I think there's a cautionary tale uh, about sort of fr- 
political framing of public policy issues here. Um, because I mean, you know, we're of uh, approximately the same age, uh, Stefan. I'm a little bit older than you, but not not by too much. Um, and and I had the same thing, right? I grew up during that, and, and everyone would say, "Oh, we have all these." Uh, basically, I was sort of you know in my early teens, right when like these sorts of programs were you know being rolled out in Ontario, anyway. And and the message there really there was never any like longer term goal, right? People were thinking about short term policy for short term political expediency, but not taking the obvious step that there's going to be, well, obviously there's more, right? And so what you do, if you just go out and say, uh, from a long-term point of view, like at the first place, when you're doing this in the first place and you say, uh, okay, well, yes, there's some low hanging fruit and we're going to go after that low hanging fruit, but eventually we're going to need to do some other stuff. So you might know that, but what you say is we have this new recycling program and this is great for the environment, but you don't say the other part. The problem is, is that the public listening to you goes now, and this is something I think we've been living with and now dealing with, at least in Ontario, I can only speak for the, at that, that radius, but I feel like this is probably applicable elsewhere is people go, good. I recycle, therefore job done, right? Stamp. <laughs> But if you go out and, you know, if you're not worried about your short-term political expediency, but you're actually thinking about long-term benefits, you go, there's some low-hanging fruit. We're going to institute these policies because it's good for the environment, but it's also going to save us a ton of money. But don't be fooled. This is a long-term process, right? And you prime people for – it's managing expectations. It's what I do every single day in a cafe when I'm dealing with customers who don't understand how our restaurant works, right? It might be expedient for me to tell them their sandwich will be ready in a minute. But if the reality is it's going to be three minutes – you tell them that because then they're ultimately less angry, right? What is the ultimate, you know, it's ultimately to my benefit to tell them it's going to take longer because overall they're going to be happier because they knew what was coming. Um, but, you know, now we're in this sort of situation where a lot of people think, well, you, hey, look, we've been doing all this stuff and we've done it. Now those guys are just complaining. It's just those extremies who really want that extreme stuff, right? Uh, where if they just said from the outset, I don't think we'd be in this position, right? But that's not how politics works and that's not how messaging works at a political level. Well, and it's also just it's – it's, it just comes from just starting from, from, a, from a place of, of being behind, right? I, I, I'm going to do uh, probably next week a segment on Schrodinger's uh, climate policy uh, about whether or not you can be good and bad policy at the same time. Um, but, but I, I want to get back to this uh, idea of this sort of – the 2000s was about reduction. Um, and it, it was moving in the right direction, right? Because like reduction is definitely better. Um, and uh, it was at least getting closer to telling the real story, right? You're getting closer to really identifying the real problem. Um, you know, a lot of anti-consumption uh, campaigns started up, but never really figured out how to take hold. Um, a lot of a lot of sort of ideas of 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 reducing, you know, of, of becoming more efficient. Efficiency was that was it was the key word here. Um, and at the very least, there were the global climate conversations forced the West to see themselves uh, in the faces of of the global. South and small Pacific Island nations. Like the fact that they all had to be, they wanted to need everyone on board meant that they had to go to these conferences in which people who were being directly affected by climate change got to stare them down in the face and say, I am suffering because of your excess. Uh, and I think that was brought back uh, to, to, into the movement of like, no, seriously, we guys, we, got, we, we need to stop. We need to reduce. We need to, we need to, we need to, we need to use less things. Um, and so that lasted for the last, I would say, I would say up until you know the mid to mid to mid twenty twenty tens or whatever you want to call them, and and that sort of concept of that we can just reduce our way out of this, and uh, and 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 it's we and it's our it's our duty uh, as as Western modern Westernized nations uh, to reduce uh, our way out of this because we're more culpable, and and 
what we see, what I think PCM is, is doing right, and what I think what People's Climate March and People's, People's Climate Movement um, is represents, and and why I think it's why I'm hopeful about it is that it represents the sort of third the third R, uh, which is reuse um, or rethink, if you will. Um, and and that I think is is the sudden is is the is the is the tri- final transition to to actually solving this problem, uh, because as much as recycling sort of helps you build a slightly less you know a slightly less polluting society, um, and as much as reducing sort of limits your impact, only a rethink will actually change uh, the underlying problem. And and the way that the people's climate march is going about this, uh, centering the sort of the marginalized and and understanding that this is a justice based movement first and foremost, is the only way this kind of radical change occurs. Can I add another R R to this situation, and that's probably regenerate. So reduce, reuse, rethink, regenerate. Like cross your fingers that we get there. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Actually, just really quickly, Bill, uh, I think it was Bill Maher or something had a piece recently, and I disagree with Bill Maher quite a lot. Uh, I think he's a bit of a a jerk, and I disagree with him. Those are two (laughs) unrelated, but uh, both of those things. Um, I do agree with him. Some, the reason I say that is because, you know, he is, I do agree with him largely in the sense that like more than 51% of his positions, I agree with him. Uh, But he was going, he did this interesting piece where he was like, forget about Mars, right? Because the Trump government uh, is saying, well, we're going to cancel all these climate change programs, but we are going to find billions of dollars to get to Mars by a certain time. And now, and for me, like if you've been listening to the show, you know that I'm like super ah, space, let's get out there. <laughs> and it is exciting. I think that's a long-term goal. It's a sort of long-term goal, like something like that it's, that's a little sexier than like, you know, environment, uh, environment, like in the sense that like uh, environment is like mitigating the damage we're doing to have what we have now, but like less like carpet bombing of the environment to get what we've got. Uh, I like that because it's something to aspire to. So for me, it's it's this it's this thing to aspire to, and it's this vision to reach for for the future. But he makes a good point when it comes to, and I you know I hate to admit it, but he makes a good point about like you know we have to just get over this notion that we can um, you know don't worry about trashing this planet because we'll just leave. Uh, and I think that's a devastating good point because it's not happening anytime soon. We can't abandon Earth. There's no as he as he put it. There's no air on Mars. That's mm-hmm. kind of important. <laughs> And and also, I feel that a lot of people that look to space or look to look to you know further away in other galaxies for innovation, it's kind of like looking outside of here for that great thing to come. Like, what if we made that great thing to come the next environmental movement or right. the next innovative technology to have you know no poverty, <laughs> like a pageant queen over here? But really, like, yeah. Well, I, I think there's. I think you got to. Uh, I, I'm when I, I used to give talks in high schools. And and the one way that I would try to uh, get across to the to these students about uh, really about what um, about why climate change mattered uh, was was so I used this sort of not use Mars but I used a sort of example of like so if we trash this planet and go to another planet who gets to go uh, and every first, <laughs> uh, and every single and every single and then that moment they were like oh right the the rich people. They're the ones who get to go. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're all in this high school together. Uh, we all know that none of us are those people. So we don't get to go to that planet, well, even and, if there is one. And I'd, I'd also be concerned the other way around. If someone came out with the headline saying, you know, all the, the poorest nations get first ticket, I'd be become very suspicious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that highlights just the fact that, like, 
every piece of this has to come from this sort of this sort of understanding that 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 real change comes from justice based approaches, and I think that's what the People's Climate Movement gets correct, uh, and that's where and that's that's the that's how we're actually that's how that's the that's what gives me hope, um, and I think what real in, in the but the, in the fact that you know this is feels like a movement and is growing uh, and is, is, is organized around is organized around the right thing and actually understands what it's doing and is, is not making the same mistakes that you know that that many many other movements have made uh, and continue to make um, is, is, is is heartening at the same time I kind of think that this like that that it and where and where we stand today with environmentalism and environmental activism uh, suffers from in some sense the same problem that the policy uh, side does. And I, and I don't want to entirely put it down to this, but in some ways, I think this is the true cost of Exxon New. You know, this, the, the, the fact that, uh, that oil companies in the late 60s knew about climate change and basically managed to keep enough doubt in, in the conversation that there wasn't even really any real discussion uh, into the early 90s. That's 20 years we lost. Uh, by uh, by 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 basically through the work of suppression and sowing dissent uh, and, and 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 rejecting science, um, they Exxon and, and, and their and their uh, there's at least uh, there's, no there's at least one other oil company that's been that's basically has the same sort of scandal coming up from them. But this fact I think is the underlying problem, right? Like if 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 20 years ago uh there was a justice based climate movement uh and and a slowly forming pr- global price on carbon we would be like okay like it would be like it would be cautious but at least it would be a lot closer um and so and so i i will be there tomorrow uh, if you're in Toronto and you you're listening to this live, uh, the, it, the march begins at noon at Allen Gardens. If you are anywhere else and hearing this on Friday, there are marches all across the world. Check out, look, look, look go to either peoplesclimate.org or peoplesclimate.ca, I think it is, uh, and find out the march closest to you. Uh, because, you know, at some point, I like it, we, we ha- it's, it's you're still showing up, you're still proving that you care, and you're still fighting for something. Um, and and I think that's important. And hopefully. Uh, sincerely, hopefully, uh, we find a way to get to Sabina's regenerate uh, because we are going. Because by the time we are done with this whole first three steps, we are going to desperately, desperately need it. Yeah, and just to wrap up before break, the idea of the sort of other planets thing is you know as much as I you know love that idea, and boy do I do, you, and you know that if you've been listening to this program, especially the bonus shows. Uh, but I frankly don't think we deserve another planet until we figure out how to take care <laughs> of this one. Once we once we figure out this one, then all hands on deck for space travel uh, and colonization and all that sort of stuff. But uh, we need to figure out how to not destroy planets before we spread the human species to anymore. I think, and that and that pains me to say, but but I have to admit it. Uh, so before we get any farther into that topic we're going to take a break you're listening to the green majority here on CIUT 89.5 fm or our podcast one of our wonderful radio partners or any of the other folks who uh, help us uh, promote the show very much appreciation uh, to those and the listeners of those uh, syndicates uh, we're also uh, going to be doing a bonus show this week which talks a little bit about uh, what makes a climate science denier change their mind very interesting uh, article about that and we'll coming back to talk about mining violence and food uh, after uh, this break as well but before we do that Kai is going to tell us what we're going to listen to. All right. um, Up next, we've got some classic Canadian. This is going to be YYZ by Rush. And I've 
probably should have said YYZ if I was saying super classic Canadian. Here we go. back you're listening to the green majority here on ciut at 9.5 fm our podcast or one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country uh also a hello to our growing list of international audience listeners as well uh nearly a third i think i mentioned this last week nearly a third of our uh, podcast downloads right now are from the u.s so welcome american listeners yeah uh, there's also a for someone i think there's a single person in newcastle who has listened to like every episode <laughs> in the last like two weeks three people in chile too <laughs> uh, although that may have just been a misclick uh, at that point. Uh, okay, so getting into the, the stories for this section. Um, oh, sorry, it was Nottingham, not Newcastle. Nottingham. I didn't want to insult our, our UK audience. <laughs> Stefan is live plugged into our metadata here, I think. Uh, so a couple things. One of them I want to get through fairly quickly. We might come back to it, but I think there's less comment to be had about that um, uh, a little bit. But there was just a story on the National Observer talking about uh, titled Albertans Get Paid to Save Energy. And it's detailing the uh, details, detailing the details uh, of an instant rebate program for energy efficiency. So uh, this is part of uh, Richard Notley's um, uh, attempt to make um, to improve the the carbon uh, output, uh, which is to say reduce uh, Alberta through a bunch of uh, consumer-based incentive programs. And I thought it was worth mentioning, uh, not just because they're doing it, there are similar programs across the country, um, but the idea of A, the, the form the program takes, which is getting uh, stores on board and uh, basically just discounting them directly at the store, telling people to go buy this stuff, and that and where the money is coming from is also interesting, which this uh, comes uh, in some part from uh, the taxes on the oil industry. So, you know, whether or not this is an effective offset for the oil that's being produced to pay for this, um, I think is a valid conversation, but I think it's beside the point for now, because the reality is the reality, and what you have today is what you have today. As my urban studies teacher used to tell us, you never get to wipe the map clean and do buildings, and so as much as we spent the first semester learning about all these like ideal city drawings, which were very fascinating, I might add, if you're ever interested in looking that up, uh, some urban planning history, very fascinating, uh, but you never get to do that. We're everywhere already, and uh, you sort of have to work with what you've got. So within that, um, I think this is very interesting because uh, you have a very aggressive push now uh, to essentially 
have the government subsidize people to buy things that they were going to buy, but you're incentivizing them to buy a certain type of product, uh, which ultimately feeds back, right? It's the ultimate feedback loop. Um, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of this money starts from the oil sands, but then what happens to it is the government taxes it, the government gives that money to consumers, the consumers were going to buy product A, they were going to already buy a product, right? These aren't new things. They were going to buy product A, and now they're going to buy product B. That product B is chosen because it reduces energy demand. Now the government now doesn't have to build as much energy. And now there's more money to free up from that pool to then be spent on other projects. So uh, I'm not I'm not familiar enough with the policy to say that this is like a shining example. Uh, I, I simply don't know. But I wanted to uh, just talk from like a, a conceptual point of view um, that these types of programs can not only be very effective, but they're also very easy to sell. Um, hmm. As far as like politically, uh, not necessarily extremely easy to sell because a lot of people will decry uh, taxes and uh, money being given out, even if they receive it simply on principle. Uh, I think those people are kind of foolish. But that being said, uh, you know, that is their opinion. And as much as I don't like it, they have a right to their own opinion. Uh, but generally speaking, these types of programs can be very effective uh, as long as they're well designed. And I think that um, this is sort of an, an installment in my ongoing discussion about um, how to make effective public policy uh, that incentivizes outcomes without sort of overly committing to the details. Um, I, I just think that, uh, we're going to have a lot more of these types of policies coming through because they're easy politically. They involve giving uh, people money and they involve taking money from corporations. Um, so as we work towards, uh, larger things like moratoriums on expansion of the oil sands and other issues, I think these are things to congratulate and say that, we're generally approve of them, uh, even if work needs to be done in the future going forward um, with these types of policies. Step. Well, I was just going to say, I think it what it what it really does um, is it acts as a advertisement for the carbon tax. You know, uh, in these systems where you're getting where you're pricing carbon tax, people will see that as um, as 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 costing them more money. Uh, and, and because they hear the word tax and, and it doesn't matter really, even if it doesn't, even if the tax itself is either too low or doesn't actually impact the cost of goods that you're buying, it will seem like that. Uh, but if you then take that money, uh, and then, and then, in a, and reinvest it in, in, in show directly to the consumer how it's saving them money, um, it's, uh, then suddenly you're, 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 uh, you're changing the conversation. And, and that's what needs to happen, you know, like in the same way that, you know, I have this ongoing refrain that everything costs too little. Um, but in the, because everyone balks at that, at that statement, uh, the only way to make everything cost at what it should, like to, uh, you know, to, to actually increase the price of things so they are reflecting the damage that is, <laughs> that they are causing really, um, is to then find ways like this to offset the cost so people who you can't afford the, the, the new high prices can afford to, to live and live in the, and live. And so it, it works in a couple ways, right? It, and, and I think that what's, the kind of interesting about this is I, I bet you that – and I don't know this, so 100 percent this could be wrong. Uh, but I bet there are dramatically more um, uh, effective ways to, to use this money mm -hmm. uh, in, to, to benefit Albertans um, or at least it's somewhat more effective. Um, but the way – but using it in this way is very intentional because it's visible. Right, mm -hmm. it's the same thing that the sales tax is, ends up being the tax everyone thinks about because because you see it every day, right? Uh, it's it's by use by making this rebate so visible uh, and so immediate. It's it's what it is. It's it's it may not be end up being as maybe effective as and helping Albertans in a more general way, but it definitely is. It will get people thinking about it and talking right. about it. Yeah, and the, and that can I mean there's 
there's a carbon savings there too, because by promoting this and by warming people up to the idea, like getting them used to this in a way that's easy to sort of swallow, um, as a first step of many, uh, I think it sort of smooths the surface on other changes when you get people like, okay, well, that was the first thing we had to do and that wasn't so bad. And I think you sort of ease people into these uh, more uh, larger changes. The second thing I want to note really quickly about what you said, of course, Stephen, is every time you say that I need to add to the qualifier uh, as well is that a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time when you're saying things need to cost more, it's not even that they're really actually costing more. It's that, it's that you're taking the costs that are hidden downstream and making them visible up, up front on the sticker price, right? So if we if it costs you know a bunch of money to dispose of the talk Toxic metals from a computer, and the com- and the government is paying out that through some sort of super fund uh, to clean up hazardous waste. You're still paying for it. You're just paying through your, through your tax dollars. But it's actually cheaper to just put that price in the sticker price in the first place. Um, because then people actually understand. So it's in, in not all the time, but many times, often, it's actually the same price. You're just making the price visible. Yes, exactly. Right? It's the yeah, sticker yeah. price that's changing, but not necessarily the total price. Well, I, and I, I think more often than not, at least the percentage of the of the of the cost is being externalized in ways that people aren't currently paying for. Right? Uh, you know, right, it, whether right, it's right. whether it's ca- whether it's carbon in the atmosphere or whether it's just you're not paying for it, but someone else in another country is paying for it because you're polluting not you're not polluting Canada's waters, you're polluting you know, another country's waters. Yeah. So I think there's, yes, I think you're definitely, someone is paying for it at some point. Um, and so we should be paying for it when we buy the thing. Right. Uh, so really quickly on this, before we move on to other things of note, one was the uh, no charge program for giving people free in home advice. I love that too, for the same reason, because now you have somebody coming into somebody's home and explain to them in personal terms about their living conditions, uh, ways to save energy. And it starts it, I think it just starts a conversation about uh, clean energy in a way that's non-confrontational because you're having someone come in and saying, uh, here's how I'm going to save you a bunch of money, mm-hmm. right? And I think having that, con- just the conversation, the human face-to-face conversation there is so critically important, I think, in changing people's minds long-term about other issues. Second of all, uh, was that there's over 700 contractors signed up for this program. So just a reminder, hey, this creates jobs for local Albertans. These are largely not multinational corporations. These are largely contractors. Everybody knows or has seen a contractor. Those people got more work. Uh, that's good for Albertans. Um, you know, just full stop. Uh, so I want to spend a little bit of time as well running through, um, there's also a mining violence story this week. Um, just for the sake of my own stomach, I'm not going to go through some of the grosser details. So I'm just going to say the, the harsh part up first and then not talk about it, not because I don't think it should be talked about, but, but because A, I don't think I'm the person to talk to it and B, I just don't have the stomach for it this week. Um, but it does involve a long history of violence and gang rape uh, in countries where Canadian mining companies are operating. Um, one of the biggest mining companies is, of course, Barrick Gold. Uh, worth noting, we're on the University of Toronto campus, less than one block from the, uh, uh, what's the center up the street? Monk Center. The Monk Center. Peter Monk, of course, uh, one of the, I think he's the CEO or one of the own, the family that owns Barrick Gold, um, sponsored. So we're a visible site of, of their wealth uh, every time we come to the studio. Uh, it, what it really talks about, though, is um, sort of this abdication of responsibility uh, for Canadian companies, things being done in Canadian companies' names in poorer countries. And a lot of the time what happens, so uh, a mine will get uh, uh, negotiated with a foreign government. In this case, Barrett Gold actually took over an existing mine. Uh, it's also partially owned by a Chinese company. Uh, but what happens is you have a very poor neighborhood. You fill it full of pollution and, and, uh, and mining waste, and there's lots of detail. There's not even really any dispute about that. Um, into these local communities, you would take impoverished communities that are that are largely powerless and make them more impoverished, more and sick, 
uh, uh, even less power. And then uh, they're saying, well, we've provided a lot of jobs. Well, okay, well, what are those jobs? A lot of the times those jobs are picking a few people out of that community and paying them to police their other community members. And so you have, you know, some people where, I mean, imagine a situation where the only or some of the only reliable employment in the neighborhood is imposing force on your community members. Now, it doesn't take a lot of imagination or a lot of empathy to come up with a situation in your own life where, say, the only source of income is enforcing the law. Uh, quote unquote, where there's virtually no other law, right? So the, the security guards for this pri these private mining companies are really the only well-equipped people in town, right? It's the only game in town. Uh, it's sort of designed for abuse. I mean, you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't possibly create a situation where the you know the only form of stable employment is is being sort of the local tough guys with almost no oversight and a government that's basically complicit. These nasty things are going to happen. So did someone you know did did Peter Monk go and and commit some atrocities? No, uh, they were done in his name and apparently uh, isn't too concerned about fixing them. They say that well you know this is uh, you know like anytime anyone says about anyone who's being abused and and violated uh, as well this is a serious problem. There's no easy solution. It's going to take a long time, which is code for uh, we could solve this problem, but it's too expensive. It's not going to make it uh, economical for us. And so too bad. Um, and as I said, I'm, I'm not really an expert on this topic. We do know some folks, Stefan, actually, who would be better uh, to speak about this. Um, but I mean, it's just, I think, a reminder that we're due every once in a while that um, Canadians are very proud of, you know, our supposed kind nature. Uh, but whether we're talking about asbestos, which was banned here and then shipped all over the world, whether we're talking about cleaning up our carbon act while we finance uh, uh, our uh, in, continue to solidify an oil industry as our main source of outcome, uh, or the uh, fact that Toronto is the mining capital of the world uh, and mining uh, generally has some pretty hideous side effects. Um, often just because of the mining, but then also because of the socioeconomic and violence, uh, because of the stability of the countries that these mines are often in, often encouraged by the companies investing in them to maintain uh, instability because it allows them to get all sorts of beneficial deals and, hey, we'll give you a bunch of money. It's a corrupt country anyway. We'll slide you some money. You ignore these regulations. Um, you know, our hands do have some blood on them, and I just have to remind them. And just the fact that you didn't do it doesn't mean that we're not responsible uh, to some degree. Um, and so, as I said, if this is something that upsets you, I do apologize. Uh, but I also hope you don't avert your eyes. I hope you go and check this out. I, I will ask you to just read this article. Um, and boy, is there more. This is a very, very this is a very single, a very singular case of a very long and, and sordid and terrifying history of of abuse of Canadian and other international companies in poorer countries like Papua New Guinea. Um, horrifying things. We're not even talking about, you know, de destroying the environment. We're also talking about, uh, you know, gang rape and, and beatings. And it's it's really hard to talk about, but the, we have to. Um, so that's sort of a note on that as well. Please check out the article. I've got, uh, oh, about three, four minutes. Okay, so I want to talk really quickly, Stefan, and, and I'm going to get a comment from you here about this. So as I said, I mentioned before, there was an article, BC Road Builder says, money improves communication with governments, of which I can say, duh. <laughs> um, but it is uh, sort of uh, interesting because something I actually didn't know, uh, people may be shocked to learn. I'm not an expert on everything. Uh, I yes, I'm sure everyone is very shocked about that. <laughs> uh, you know, just most things. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't realize there was such a, a variety of landscapes here. So we're um, – the companies and private corporations and uh, unions can give directly to political parties in BC. Governments of Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick have banned political donations from unions and corporations. Um, 
so there's a different uh, political landscape. And what you see, of course, here is that wherever it is allowed, um, and this goes from, uh, you know, whether it's uh, the Green Party or the NDP or the Liberals or, or you know, the numbers are all different, uh, but where it's allowed, this happens. And the thing, here, like, I don't think we, I don't think I need to explain to anybody, <laughs> unless this is your first time ever listening to the show, and then just go listen to some old episodes <laughs> um, about the corrupting power of. I mean, we we look, we need only look south to to see the corrupting power of essentially legalized bribery. Um, but the thing I wanted to get into here is is more the idea of that, you know. Uh, so, for instance, the NDP in BC uh, took home six point two million. Uh, uh, I've lost the year here, but I th- believe that's for a single year uh, last year. Um, and you know, just over half a million of that was from corporations, almost 2 million, 1.7 million was from unions, right? By political party, it's going to change. Uh, liberals got, uh, 62% of their money from corporations, uh, and 34% virtually no money from unions. Um, and, uh, green parties included with some different numbers and, and, and going on, uh, on and on. Um, but like, there's sort of two questions here. One, why is this allowed anywhere at all? Um, like I, I, I find it, I, I was like, that can't be, I thought this was like an American thing that this even happened at all. My ignorance, uh, but also just the idea of this interesting interplay between, and this is really what I wanted to spend a minute talking about, uh, was just this interplay between sort of union donations and corporate donations. And I think the misunderstanding, because I don't agree that unions are, give donations to help, like unions don't offset corporations, right? <laughs> They're two special interests. Now, one of those special interests I find a little bit more palpable in theory, uh, which is, you know, unions are protecting workers, but not all workers. They're protecting their workers, right? Some of these unions might be pipeline building un- unions, and there's nothing wrong with the people whose that's their job. But I just, I think we should just sort of all agree um, as many provinces already have that there, there has to be a way to have free and fair elections that don't involve people with a big amount of money sort of putting their hand on the scale. And, uh, I basically ate up most of my minute. Maybe you have just a, just a comment on that, <laughs> Stefan, but I don't know how does this, do, do well, you think it's as big an issue as I do? Well, I, I think it's, I think you can, yeah, like yes, money in politics is is a massively corrupting force, and I think you know everything everything that the, that the, that the, that the states has gone through in the last little while uh, with the amount of money you now need to run. Because like uh, there's one thing to me, it's one thing, it's it's one thing to for a subset of people to be able to uh, to be able to overtly influence uh, the people running um, by uh, with money. Uh, and the more money they can give them, obviously, the more influence some sense they can have. Uh, but I think what's actually perhaps more concerning, uh, and that you sort of see this, especially in the United States right now, is th- once that starts happening, it becomes more and more and more expensive to run a campaign. And once the more and more expensive to run a campaign, it suddenly that becomes a barrier for who can run. Uh, and who can actually and and then and that to me has a much larger uh, influence on 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 end, on the end of, of policies and and what happens because if you have to be fundraising for half of your like literally like there's like the amount of Congress in the states has fundraises uh, even during their two year term um, it's like it's like half every day uh, is is calling to ask for money then yes of course. Of course, it will influence you, um, and so we have to find a way to to actually make 
campaigning costs less um, or just put a cap on your campaign total expenditures and so everyone actually has an opportunity to run you know if, if a random person can't decide to run for office because they can't afford it um, then you're not a true democracy you know if, if everyone can't run a campaign uh, and you know again there's also has to be a level of which you need some money you have to pay your staffers I'm like I'm not saying you can't have you can't have some money in this sort of thing but I think there has to be this understanding that the the minute that you sort of let this run rampant, the minute that you sort of let the price of of being able to run a campaign skyrocket the way it has, you are cutting out the people who 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 a refuse to take the money, uh, which is not a great sign, uh, and b who who don't have rich friends, which also means that there's a subset of the population who aren't running because they can't afford it, and those people are the people we need to be advocating for. Yeah. Uh, and so like yes, I think that like I think any kind of any kind of direct donation is is, is probably a concern. Uh, but you to me it's it you have to find a way to make campaigning cost less. Yeah. Well, and I think, and as I said, we're basically out of time. We're going to go to break in here in just a half a second. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, like, you know, you cut, you create some threshold by which, you know, somebody has to get a half a million signatures or 500,000 signatures or 50 signatures, whatever it is. And then everybody gets the same thing. Once you read that threshold, it's entirely publicly financed. Uh, everyone gets the exact same amount of money, the exact same things, the exact same. We could even go in so far, and, and some people might find this extreme, but like the exact, like uh, either some sort of equivalency around like TV time, right? Like, uh, you know, if you do an interview with this person, you have to interview, you know, the other two candidates and, you know, whatever. But like, there's a way we could do this. But I think people are very, just generally my comment on that is that people are very resistant to sort of adjust our democracy, but the world changes and technology has vastly changed uh, how the world functions in the last five years, much less the last 20. Uh, But our fundamental democracy hasn't been updated in quite some time and not anywhere near the the degree to which uh, the world has changed. And so this isn't necessarily a pitch for any specific policy, although I did just mention one one thing I think is worth talking about. But I just just the idea that that the the way in which our democracy functions needs we need to have an appetite to revise it. As, as Justin Trudeau said, there's no appetite supposedly for electoral reform. We have to have one, whether or not he thinks there is one, whether or not Canadians think there is one. Uh, it has to be part of our culture to be willing to and have the courage to and have the the capacity and the energy to uh, revisit and revise our democracy where it's uh, where it's necessary and. Uh, it, it can't be it can't be taboo but let's go uh let's go to break here i think steven is going to jump in and tell us what our second and final music break is good morning everybody uh now we'll be listening to dirty town by mother mother who i believe is from vancouver Get gone from a dirty town. Get gone from a dirty town. 
here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful radio community podcast uh, partners, uh, or the podcast, which can be found at greenmajority.ca or on iTunes. Very important that you do that if you're a fan of the show. If you like the show, you're a regular listener, you enjoy what we do. Check out the podcast for a few reasons. One, there's a bunch of stuff uh, that we do on the podcast that you don't get on the radio show. And now there's an entirely separate show. So we've been doing a bonus show for a while. It's now being posted separately uh, so that, uh, you know, because not everybody has an hour and a half. Uh, that they can sit and down and listen to one thing. So we're, we're posting it uh, differently. So this week uh, after the show, uh, what will be posted in a few days if you're listening live, uh, is uh, about a uh, Reddit, uh, uh, an article that was written based on a Reddit uh, um, thread, uh, which is a, for like the two people who don't know what Reddit is, is a message board <laughs> service uh, about confessionals of climate deniers and what made them change their minds. Very interesting. But the last 15 minutes of the live show is Sabina's. Take it away. Thank you, Darren. So on this segment, you kind of alluded a little bit earlier about new technologies and ways that those are that's changing the world in the last five years and even 20 years. So on this segment, I'll be talking about agriculture, new farming technologies, as well as equal opportunities for future generations in this field. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when I personally think of farmers, I think of an older white gentleman <laughs> with his like 2,000 acres and whatever farm he has there. And this this suspicion was very um, made very clear to me. I was at a conference these past couple of days, and the person um, representing the Ontario Farmers Association was basically the oldest, whitest guy in the room. I was like, that's it. That's that's farming. And I think I think this needs to change. And I think it's slowly starting. It's slowly starting to do that and and this is interesting because the guardian published three articles focusing on new and sustainable technologies and their use in australia as well as the role of women so the first article um kind of alluded to invisible farmers it showcased how australian women are often called the invisible farmer because they contribute to 48 percent of the farm income yet they might not be as recognized for it because women's work is usually unpaid work such as cleaning other duties maintaining the farm and um it's not really considered real work. Interestingly, however, more and more Australian uh, daughters of farmers, farmers' daughters, are coming back from university and taking an active role in managing the farms through sustainable and climate-smart agriculture, which is what I personally believe is the way to move forward. Um, farmers are always the first to get hit by any changes or irregularities in weather patterns because the seeds need certain conditions to grow. Thus, climate change has a very large effect on their income, as well as, of course, the general food security for the world. So women in Australia are actually using educational outreach as well as innovative technologies such as drones in order to change this industry little by little. I think this is really important using data, using just more than gut feeling in farming using all of these new technologies because the weather is changing whether we believe that or not whether you're a climate change denier or not um, food security is extremely important so using modeling and um, just data systems in order to kind of make farming a little bit 
hotter if I can, then that's really important. So moreover, another article in this series was focused on drip irrigation technology for farming in arid and wheat belt towns of, a, of Western Australia. So this region doesn't really have a lot of local growers because the conditions are super harsh. And in the last 20 years, um, rainfall has decreased by 20%. Interestingly, new companies in the area are determined to create locally grown food by using drip irrigation technology. And this type of technology only requires 10% of the water that's needed for regular open field agriculture, which, which is obviously, why aren't we all doing this? <laughs> this water is obtained through a natural surface runoff and pumped by a solar energy system used for irrigation. Yet it's not the only technology out there. So other ones, for example, hydroponics and aquaponics are hydroponics. It always has that kind of here in North America, you're just thinking weed growing. But no, it's actually used for a lot more things. And uh, first, first, no less, I might add. <laughs> it was used first. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, you know, it works. <laughs> Um, where the conditions are harsh and used to grow and produce um, without any used to grow produce with any har without any harmful inputs such as fertilizers and pesticides, hydroponic growing is different from traditional farming because um, the plants are grown in trays that contain nutrient rich water and they're photosynthesized through low energy LEDs. Aquaponics is very similar, but it uses fish waste as a source of organic food for the plants. However, both of these are new ways um, of farming and they have actually really amazing implications for the future because you don't need soil or land. So you can actually grow this um, even in your own home, if you would. I'm going to completely fully disclose that a couple of friends of mine, they have a company here in Toronto called Just Vertical and they're using this exact thing. They're using hydroponic farming in the form of farm walls to allow people to farm in their own condos or even offices and it, it could actually have a lot of implications for food security later on, especially in cities. And I think it's these types of technologies that we need in order to kind of mitigate climate change in the end. I, I, I don't personally think technology is going to save us, but maybe it could kind of mitigate our, our destruction a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> now, that is, that, I think you win for uh, the, you win the Kevin Farmer Award, uh, which is for saying the most depressing thing on air. But uh, technology about it. won't save us, but will mitigate our destruction for a little bit longer. <laughs> and um, finally, another, <laughs> the last article was talking about a gene bank in Australia that's using research in order to understand which seeds and plants will be able to grow in certain climates and giving this information to both public and private sectors, which I think is important. Diversity is really important in order to maintain our food systems for them not to collapse. Of course, if one pest or disease, um, if you have monoculture, of course, one pest or disease will completely destroy your crop if you're not fully prepared for it. So obviously a diverse agriculture, diverse systems are really what's required for, for our food security. And as I said, this is a really important topic and kind of the question that I have for you guys, you can spitball, whatever, um, is what do you think we need in order to create better solutions for agriculture? Is it technology? Is it old ways of thinking? Yeah. Um, do you wanna, you know, I'll start. No, All right. I'll, I'll take this. Um, or at least I'll begin. I'm sure you'll jump in. Um, that's. I think you need everything. Honestly, I think you end up needing an all-hands-on-deck kind of response. You know, I don't know if... I, I, I think there's a, I think we're looking at kind of a, 
a two a two not only say two tiered but two sided system. You know, there's uh, the, these these sort of new technologies like hydroponics uh, and aquaponics, um, and in these ways that sort of allow you to to grow a lot uh, a grow a lot of um, of food uh, in 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 dense urban areas uh, is going to be incredibly important. I think unquestionably, you know, the, the problem with them for a long time has been the fact that they're quite energy intensive. Uh, but again, as we sort of discussed even last week on the show, this this need and this push towards electrification of everything um, is 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 what is is the only way to save this, right? Is the only way to is the only way for us to get to a place where uh, where we'll be um, where, where where that doesn't matter anymore, you know. And, and so and once you have that electrification, then you're actually really then then suddenly this becomes a, a much more uh, something not, that's not viable, but a much but a much more uh, sustainable practice. And sorry, gentlemen. right? And and I, I mean this this whole thing of saying uh, they're very energy intensive. If you have a large uh, farm or a hydroponic or drip drip irrigation farm outside of the city or kind of close to the city, you can use solar energy if that's a viable like type of energy in that area. And then it's you're not really destroying the environment because you're using renewable energy, which is going to be cheaper in the future, and you're using kind of better farming technologies. You don't have to use as many pesticides, as many fertilizers. Or as much water, so I think. Well, yeah, and then and then as, so that so yeah, that, that's the sort of second part of this, right? Is the is the is what you see in traditional farms, um, and the opportunity in traditional farms, of course, is to actually you know is really to go back, is to is to go back to the sort of ways that we were farming, uh, you know, in in not not all of the ways, of course, but quite consecutively that we've been farming for. Th- Tens, hundreds, like at least tens of thousands of years, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, well, I guess for what agriculture was invented maybe about ten or twelve thousand years ago. So about twelve thousand years. Um, in this sort of understanding of the importance of crop rotation and for and, and actually taking care of the fertilizers, I feel like we've got to a point now where we're trying to um, we're trying to we're trying to we're trying to cheat. Really, uh, we spent the last like a hundred, two hundred, three years of of of, uh, of agriculture being like, what? How many things can we pump into the soil instead of taking care of it? What, how many things can we pump into it to give us the greatest yield? Instead of thinking, how can I make the soil and and the most sustainable, and how can I really cultivate a a real ecosystem um, within within our within our crops? Uh, and so I think it's this two tiered system of going sort of going back into the past with with a lot of our with our sort of larger scale farming uh, and and sort of you know more rural farming and then really really hyper finding sort of these new future technologies for for dense urban farming mm-hmm. uh, and I think a combination of those two things might get us to at least a more sustainable food system you know before yeah as you mentioned we die anyways yeah so I want to uh, just take uh, a minute here and it might be the last one we got about four minutes left so uh, <laughs> just by taking a minute to defend technology for a minute <laughs> uh, and and to also to answer your question but I mean Technology, I think when you use the word technology, people think of gadgets. People think of computers and laptops and, and, and that those are very useful things. Will, you know, a, a new gadget solve – like it gets very fuzzy, right? So we need to define terms. Technology is a tool, right? So from the point of view of using the word technology, there's, are, there's no difference functionally, categorically speaking, between a hammer and a laptop. Okay, they're both tools. Uh, they require different inputs to create them. Uh, one took a lot longer to develop, right? There are differences, but there. So when we're saying technology won't save us, what we're saying is tools won't save us. Right. 
tools are the only thing that has ever saved us. Tools are the reasons why we dominate this planet. Tools are the reasons why we, how we were able to conquer nature to the point that we were able to uh, impede it so badly. So the, the, to say, and I know this is not what you meant, but just as far as like conceptually and for the audience, uh, to say that technology won't save us, I think is, is demonstrably false. I think technology is the only thing that's ever saved us. It's the only reason we're here. So what's important and this is where I'm getting with. What's important is the conversation is is the is the cautionary tale that is being told here, and I just want to be more specific about it because I agree with you. I just want to I just want to be clearer about what we're saying. Is that the problem here is that people think that someone will figure out a gadget to solve the problem, therefore I don't have to do anything. That is the problem. Technology is a neutral party here. It's what are we what are we focusing our tools. What, what problem are we using our tools to solve? And if, if we decide someone will figure out some tool at a later point to solve a problem we have now and therefore I don't have to do it, well, then yes, that will end us. <laughs> the, if we're thinking we have a problem and we need to develop better tools to solve it and maybe that's a laptop but maybe it's just a better hammer and, and we're not obsessed with the shiny gadgets of technology but we're interested in tools to solve problems, then yes. But and so with to the extent that I know you meant that I agree with you, but it's more of a pipe dream to think that the world would even be willing to do that. The people will give up their quote unquote gadgets to solve that problem than it is that we'll figure out. I think it's less likely than it is that we'll figure out a tool to do that. So lay off on technology, but uh, but do recognize that that assuming some future, you know, nerd who's going to start some future not Facebook or not Google to solve the climate crisis is is, uh, you know, wishing for death. Uh, it is. It is uh, abdicating responsibility, and it is sowing the, the seeds of our own destruction. Um, but leave technology out of it. It's it's short sighted thinking, and and assuming someone else will solve the problem, I think is is, is the real problem. Uh, there's precisely one minute. Your final words, Steph. Uh, um, okay, so you you have a lot there that I kind of I, <laughs> I kind of agree and disagree with you. Um, I do I do believe I know that what you're saying is that technology is a tool in order for us to move forward, and we can use it to think differently about things and create new ways. But I think the way technology has been used so far is domination of nature by man. And it's kind of, we're here today because of technology. That's completely correct. But where are we here? We're in yeah, like a climate change crisis. Right. We're, <laughs> that, <laughs> we're, was, that was my reaction. It was like, yeah. yes, we're here. You're, that's true. And here is where we all think we're, we're at an existential right. extinction what it, what it means is what did people design those tools to do, right. not there's a problem with tools. Mm. That's my point. If, you're, if your tools you're designing are to prevent environmental destruction, great. If you're designing them to destroy the environment, then that's not great. But the tools are neutral. It's what are you design? What technology, what tools are you designing and what do you ask them to do? I think we mostly all agree on that. And we're out of time anyway, so let's all pretend that we do. Uh, we do have a bonus show coming up. It will be released on Monday if you're listening live. Uh, check the podcast stream, greenmajority.ca, to get on that. We'll be talking about climate deniers and the reason they changed their minds. But that's it for the live radio show, folks. You've been listening to The Green Majority. Thank you so much from us here live in Toronto for listening to us yet again this week. Take care.